Welcome to What's the Deal? It's our investment banking podcast on Making Sense, the hub for JP Morgan corporate and investment bank podcasts. In each episode of What's the Deal, we'll be exploring the trends that drive deal making today and see what's really transforming industries the world over, from tech disruption to geopolitics and more. Hi, I'm Evan Junick, Managing Director in JP Morgan's Corporate Finance Advisory Team. I'm excited to be joined today by Fred Turpin, Global Head of JP Morgan's Media and Communications Investment Banking Practice. Fred, great to have you here and thanks for joining today. Evan, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we jump right in, can you talk a little bit about how you got here? How did you get into investment banking, your background, and why media and communications? I've been doing this in some fashion for close to 30 years. I took a little bit of a break to do strategic consulting. I just have a preference for being in the financial advisory business. And I've been here at JP Morgan for almost 12 years now and been running the global media communications practice for six. Our sector has been on the forefront of every innovation in the investment banking world for the last 10 or 15 years, at least in terms of my career. So it's been a super exciting time. I think the media and communications investment banking practice is the NFL of investment banking. It is super competitive. Our clients are experienced and demanding, but we get to work on some of the most interesting and exciting transactions, and it's a blast. The NFL of investment banking, I love that. Let's talk about the industries you spend time in. Never has the world been more interconnected. Never has the world depended more on the devices that are now in our pockets and on our wrists. What are the themes and trends that your clients are now facing in your conversations with them? So I think we're in a dynamic period of change in the media communications sector. There's been an incredible focus on entertainment and content value, particularly as behavior changes. If you looked in 2019, I stood up in front of our TMC equity conference with a slide that showed $95 billion of content spending expected across the media companies and asked whether this was sustainable, right? Can the industry continue to spend $100 billion a year on the creation of content to attract screaming subscribers. Well, I stood in front of the same conference post-COVID last May, and the number was 140 billion. For now, yeah, it can sustain that level of investment. And for me, I think this is the golden age of entertainment. There's never been more super high quality premium content to watch, whether it's on your phone, whether it's on your iPad, whether it's on your TV, whether it's on linear, whether it's on streaming. But the cost to continue to produce this content is real. And you've seen valuations correct for the media companies. And this is a very high stakes game. This is survival of the fittest and scale is going to matter. Cost of capital is going to matter. Efficiency of content production is going to matter. And it's very unclear where we end up in three years. And so in boards around the industry, everybody is very focused on trying to figure out how to make the right moves at the right time to maintain a strategic edge and maintain an advantage that they'll be able to press over the next two or three years in what is an increasingly competitive and capital-intensive backdrop. Fred, you mentioned that number of $140 billion of spend. That's about 40% of what the world spends on oil and gas production. Uh, Hard to have a conversation about the next three years without also talking about recession risk and the uncertainty that is now permeating economic markets as well as capital markets. When you're talking to boards, to CEOs, to CFOs, how are they balancing those concerns with the strategy for the next three, five years and beyond? Sure. So financial flexibility is worth four times what it was two years ago. In the environment that we had during the run-up in the bull market, capital was effectively free. 
People could buy growth. No one had to do M&A because you could invest on your own and the ability to raise capital at very attractive prices was broadly available, whether you were a startup or whether you were Warner Discovery. That's changed, right? Cost of capital is a differentiator today. Scale matters substantially more today than it did two years ago in terms of who's going to make it to the finish line. And these are issues that are very present in front of boards of directors now across media and communications. I mean, this has always been a capital intensive sector. And so a dollar of synergies, a dollar of programming costs, a dollar of capital avoidance today is worth a whole lot more than it seemed to be strategically two years ago. And as a consequence, the scope around strategic discussions that are both being had or that would be appropriate to be had in this environment continues to expand. If you can make two plus two equal five in this environment, that's a great strategy. It was a discretionary strategy two years ago when the art of the possible was so much broader. Today, the degrees of freedom around corporations and the limitations on availability of capital are real. And if they're M&A transactions or investments that can dramatically change someone's position or fortune in an industry, they're getting a lot more attention right now. On one of the recent podcasts, there was a good discussion around how activist activity has come back. Can you talk a little bit about how the role of the activist or what the role of the activist is within the media communication space and the prevalence of that risk or lack thereof? Sure. Well, there's going to be more of it because some rules for how activists can actually win have been relaxed, and we're going to see more and more of it this proxy season. That being said, the media sector is a magnet for activism. If you want to be on favor, launch an activist attack publicly against a high-profile media company. Now, many of these campaigns, they have merit, or at least they have a bit of merit, right? And I think boards are increasingly being prepared and working with advisors, both legal and financial, in advance in anticipation that they will eventually be the subject of a public activist attack. And if you're not prepared for it before it happens, it can be a source of friction and volatility with your board. So I think it's very important that companies and boards address these issues and the risk of them proactively, have a lead independent director, hire an advisor, have a plan on the shelf for what they will do and who will be responsible for what when it happens, because it will. And then when they have their board meeting over the weekend to explain to everyone what happened and what they're going to do about it, everybody's already briefed, everybody knows how to run the play, and it's not a source of panic or anxiety. Can you talk a little bit about the role of sponsors in the sector right now? And how are they positioned? Public versus private markets, it's something that even Jamie Dimon mentioned in his shareholder letter earlier in the year. Now, how is that dynamic playing out within the media and communication space? So sponsors have historically been very active in our space because the financing markets have loved to finance single B credits and media and communications because they're long-term assets or valuable libraries. But the game has moved to a level of global scale that has made it challenging for even the largest sponsors to be truly relevant. And so what we've seen is the sponsors have retreated more towards sector investments and sector themes at the earlier stage level and location-based entertainment in areas like music, studio production, streaming globally, data centers, and wireless businesses. They historically were great businesses for sponsors, but they just run away. The check sizes are so big. The equity accounts are so large. It's very hard for even the largest sponsors to write five and $6 billion equity checks to try to participate in some of that. And that's just for a minority participation. This is really no longer small ball. This is 10,000 pound gorillas dancing on the same dance floor. 
And, you know, if you're one of those gorillas, you want to make sure you have the right moves. Obviously, the changing interest rate environment, cost of capital changing, and, and that's just going to be an incremental impediment to a lot of that sponsor activity, I'd have to imagine. So one of the themes that we've seen, it's expensive to do LBOs now. The cost of capital and the cost of financing commitments for traditional LBOs, particularly in our sector where deals take nine to 15 months to close, has really widened out. We've seen an increase in sponsors playing marquee assets through minority investments and partnerships with the company. So an example of that is a deal that we recently worked on with American Tower, where they sold a 30% interest in their data center subsidiary core site. They were able to attract a valuation for that stake that was slightly in excess of what they paid for the whole company nine months earlier when the comps were actually 20% higher. But the demand for super high quality communications infrastructure assets is high and the supply and the opportunity to invest is slow. I think we're going to see more of that type of investment creativity going forward. You've mentioned a couple clear themes, scale being one obvious one, cost of capital, the capital intensity of the industry on a go-for basis. Do you see the potential for corporate clarity becoming an incremental theme? Look, I think corporate clarity is always important whether it's in terms of the assets the companies conclude they want to hold longer term or just how they prioritize their investments, right? And maybe one of the great case studies on corporate clarity has played out in our sector in the last two years, just watching what John Stanky has done to recreate AT&T. AT&T in two years has divested effectively or deconsolidated DirecTV as well as Warner Media and remade themselves as a consumer broadband, wireless, and fiber company. They've taken leverage from three times to two and a half times. At three times leverage with the capital requirements that they had, they were in a debilitating place from a rating agency perspective with the largest balance sheet in corporate America, or corporate world, actually. And now they've slimmed that down to two and a half times. They're generating a billion dollars more free cash flow today on a smaller business than they were with the larger business four years ago. And they're in a position to invest in their core wireless and fiber of the home businesses in a way that they never could have done two years ago when they still had DirecTV and Warner to fund. And so they spun Warner to Discovery in one of the largest RMT transactions of all time that we advised on. And now Discovery Warner is one of the leading media companies on the planet. These are tectonic plates moving around at light speed. And it's going to take management teams and investors a while, both to understand how the integrations are going to work. And frankly, where are these industries really evolving to over time? The evolution in streaming content distribution, whether it's Disney or Netflix or Discovery or Paramount, this is happening in real time. Anybody that thinks they know the answers to where all this is going to be in 2025 is kidding themselves. Even the smartest people in the sector are a bit looking at the shadows on the wall of the cave, like Plato, and trying to figure out what true north is. And it's been a very exciting time for us as advisors because I think clients need and value really good advice in this environment in terms of how they should think about their priorities, and corporate clarity. So we've talked about $140 billion worth of content spending, the huge amount of focus around streaming. I've got to ask you, what are you watching right now? I love Yellowstone. I love Top Gun 2. I've seen Top <laughs> you and Gun me 2 both. <laughs> three, I've, I've seen Top Gun 2 three times. <laughs> Top Gun 2 is the only movie that was number one on Memorial Day and number one on Labor Day in the history of box office. There's plenty of great streaming content out there, whether it's Yellow Jackets or Yellowstone or, or Secession or Billions, but I want to see movies again. Yeah. 
Well, I, it got me back into the theater. I was there for it. So I couldn't agree with you more. So we're recording this right on the cusp of fall. And as we enter into this new season, what are the three themes that you believe will be a focus in 2023? As I look broadly across media communications, if I had to name three themes, I think the first one would be the continued evolution of direct-to-consumer streaming content. And when I say evolve, I mean whether it's advertising supported or straight subscription. It's a lot blurrier now about what's successful and what's not. And eventually, we're going to have to get down to what's the revenue, what's the profitability, and what's the return on capital for the models that individual companies are pursuing. I think we're going to find that there is no one-size-fits-all. They're just strategies that work in terms of generating return on capital and profitability and strategies that don't or don't work as well. The second area, I think, is around communications infrastructure, which is the total re-architecting of the entire data networking for the entire world, but certainly here in the United States. So what allows all that bit traffic? to get you your movies and your phone content, or what might drive your car at some point in terms of being able to get connectivity and low latency at the edge of networks. We're going to continue to see capital deployed aggressively in the sector in spite of the recession. One of the most remarkable things to me in our practice is even though the comps for towers, fiber, and data centers in the public markets are all down 20% in the last nine months, the private market valuations for these assets have not skipped a beat. There are pools of capital that continue to be very focused on getting invested in critical communications infrastructure platforms, and they're just not a lot of really high quality ones. And so when there's an opportunity to make those investments, we have seen valuations maintain the levels that we were at 9, 12, 15 months ago. Now, maybe that won't last forever, but it has lasted for the last 9 or 10 months in private market auctions. And I think we will continue to see that sector outperform from an attracting private capital perspective. And then the last thing is something we talked about earlier. Consolidation is going to continue to matter more and more. Bespoke investment, CapEx, development projects that people were funding two years ago, those have gotten a lot harder and a lot more expensive on a return on capital perspective from a standalone basis. And if they're transactions that make sense, that bring technology, bring capability, bring scale, bring cost reductions into platforms that are truly strategic, you are going to see the public markets welcome those types of transactions against this otherwise very inhospitable backdrop because investors know how to think about those. They know when two plus two really equals five or six, and they are going to applaud management teams who use their stock currencies prudently and use their cash currency prudently to fortify their businesses for the long term during this really challenging market environment. Fred Turpin, thank you again for joining me today. Really appreciate the conversation and your insights. My pleasure, Evan. Let's do it again soon. If you're enjoying this conversation, you can subscribe to What's the Deal, as well as our other podcasts to stay on top of the latest industry news and trends. Follow JP Morgan's Making Sense on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. This material was prepared by the Investment Banking Group of J.P. Morgan Securities, LLC, and not the firm's research department. It is for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase, sale, or tender of any financial instrument.